for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we head to London, where we're just hours away from the coronation of King Charles III, the first coronation of a British monarch since Queen Elizabeth back in 1953. We meet a Canadian who's been camped out along the procession route to catch a glimpse of history. We find out how the royal family is trying to present a ceremony steeped in tradition and wealth as something a little more modern and inclusive, and whether or not that is a balance that can actually be achieved. And we head behind the scenes to talk with a longtime counterterrorism expert about how Britain manages security for these kinds of major events that draw leaders and other dignitaries from around the world. And we learn that parts of the urban landscape are actually counter-terror measures in disguise. Which ones could those be? But first, dozens of wildfires are burning out of control in Alberta tonight, leading to tens of thousands of people being asked to leave their homes. The latest in and around the town of Edson, west of Edmonton, on late Friday, we find out how hot, dry conditions are fanning the flames this year and what fire crews will need to gain the upper hand. Let's start tonight in Alberta because it's been a fast-changing day in that province. Wildfires, there are 91 apparently active wildfires across Alberta at this hour, including 30 listed as out of control. Uh, They have prompted thousands of people to have to leave their homes. Uh, Of course, this is all part of a problem due to record-breaking hot, dry weather in parts of the province. Alberta's Wildfires, Christy Tucker, says the forecast threatens to fan the flames even further over the weekend. We're expecting very warm weather and extremely strong winds, uh, particularly in the northern half of the province. And uh, this will tell you this is not great for wildfire activity. That tends to cause very active wildfires, and our folks on the ground are going to have to be very careful about their own safety and, of course, the safety of the communities that they're protecting. This evening, uh, late this afternoon, Yellowhead County, where the town of Edson is, home to about 9,000, ordered the municipality to be evacuated. A large swath of the county is also under evacuation order. That affects about 15,000 more people. Um, So people being urged to flee their homes calmly. This, for the time being, is a precaution. Still, there is concern there uh, this evening. Uh, People, of course, with the smoke in the area have already been preparing for that eventuality. Last night, about 7,000 people were ordered to evacuate the town of Drayton Valley about 140 kilometers west of Edmonton. Um, Edson is also just west of Edmonton. Uh, The Alberta Emergency Management Agency says crews are working to battle dozens and dozens of wildfires. They have others on the way, apparently from Ontario and Quebec. We're expected to arrive today. Some reinforcements, about 79 of them. Uh, The province's Emergency Management Committee was scheduled to meet this afternoon as well, according to a statement from the Premier's office. Uh, This all follows on the heels of other evacuations happening further north. The Little Red River Cree Nation directed all its residents and essential workers who were still in the area around Fox Lake, uh, located near south of the Peace River, to leave immediately a 4,300 hectare wildfire in that area has destroyed 20 homes already in that northern Alberta Indigenous community and forced the entire community, as I mentioned, to leave. Here is one of the evacuees uh, speaking uh, earlier today. It's kind of surreal because you hear about the fires and they're so common um, that, you know, you just kind of wait and see. And then when it actually happens, it's you realize how devastating it is to these families and the little kids especially that they're here without any you know without any of their personal belongings nobody can has a home to go to right now everybody's wondering 
That is Joseph Boises, who is a Fox Lake evacuee in high level. They've moved to that community uh, for the time being where shelters are set up to accommodate those leaving their homes. For information, the best spot, Alberta, Alberta.ca wildfire status. The wildfire status page is probably the best place to find concise, up-to-date information. But let's get more from Morgan Black. She's a digital journalist with Global News Edmonton and 630 Chet, And she joins me now. Morgan, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This has been a busy day. I mean, it's hard to keep track of how quickly things have been moving, but certainly uh, eyes shifted to Edson late this afternoon. It's overwhelmingly busy here in Alberta. Just to give you kind of a, you know, a zoom out look is last night, I was called by Global News asking if we would go to a fire in the morning. And I went to sleep thinking I was going to a fire in Wildwood, um, Parkland County area in Edmonton. And when I woke up, Drayton Valley had been issued an evacuation order and we had to reroute and just in the it wasn't I didn't even really have that long of a sleep it was just like five hours later we woke up and they were like no this is happening now and then throughout the entire day these emergency alerts you talk about the situation um, on our we're we're heading back to Edmonton now and on our drive-in we see another plume of smoke um, just coming like southeast Edmonton area um, and then we find out that another evacuation order has been has been sent out um, just uh, just from just outside of another city um, it's it's wild it's very it's it's very difficult to keep up with there's a lot of yeah alerts. yeah it's it's I mean you know as, as a big picture it's a scary situation tell me a bit about what's happened um, in Edson in and around that area because Yellowhead County was the one that happened today and that's a big that's 15,000 people all being asked to sort of move west, right, towards Hinton and Jasper. That's a lot of people. But I guess people have been prepared for this, given the situation. Yeah, and we do have a Global News crew en route to Edson right now because we, in um, in Drayton Valley, we were hearing about a little bit of concerns in Edson because we saw those telltale signs of the skies where everything is dark orange and that really crisp red color that makes you think that fires are near. So, um, yeah, so the town of Edson, it's, the latest municipality, um, apart from the one that we just discussed, uh, to fall under an evacuation order as dozens of these wildfires are, are happening. So Yellowhead County ordered the municipality, um, and this is, I should note, known by many as an important oil and gas town. They ordered the right. evacuation shortly after 5.30 p.m. tonight, um, and then the, a large majority of the, of the county surrounding it also under an evacuation order. Oh, what about the goodness, situation? Evac- that an evacuation order just went off again on my phone. Sorry, there's right. There's yeah. So much going on. I, I was again. You know, I you know. Obviously, we have other stories we're talking about tonight. But as I started to focus in on this one, I mean, the evacuation orders and the alerts just kept coming and coming and coming. What was the situation in Drayton when you? I mean, that's where you started the day. What's happened there? Yeah. So we we arrived at Drayton Valley um, just before 7 a.m. And on our way there, we were obviously navigating a lot of road closures because people were being asked to avoid the area, largely um, like large highways were shut down and things like that. Um, So as we're getting closer and closer to Drayton Valley, we notice um, folks pulled over to the side of the road or in parking lots or in church parking lots asleep in their car because that was the situation is that they just had to get out and then they were like, Okay, well, we didn't. They, the, I, uh, backtracking, they didn't. Um, they didn't let us know where the evacuation center was going to be until 4 a.m. Uh, so a lot of folks evacuated last night around 10:30, 11 p.m. Uh, with no clear direction of where with the next to go. Step to be was. Yeah, yeah. So when, yeah, so when out, we were driving, yeah. exactly. So when we were driving in, we found a lot of these folks who 
just kind of pulled over and said, I guess this feels safe. This feels comfortable. I can't see a fire imminently in front of me, so I'm going to sleep here. Um, and they and they told us stories of, of uh thousands and thousands of people just down this one stretch of road um, trying to all get out at the same time. And they, they said it was very surreal, very scary, right? Yeah, I mean, and with nowhere to go, I guess I guess authorities, because of just how fast this is moving, the authorities are also scrambling to try and find places for everyone to go. That's a lot of people all moving all at once. Totally. And when we asked Fire Chief Tom Thompson, he's uh, the Fire Chief for Drayton Valley and the uh, surrounding county, we asked him about this, about why the delay for the evacuation centre. And he said that there were so many other fires um, in the surrounding area that there weren't very many choices to send these folks for a safe place to stay. And then you look, uh, you just keep getting closer and closer and closer to Edmonton and you're seeing, okay, this this is all booked, this is all booked, this is all booked. Um, these evacuees have already arrived. Uh, so they did eventually settle on um, the Expo Centre in Edmonton, which is a, a very large facility and uh, I believe maybe about a thousand um, evacuees have, have since come through. So so yeah, it was just, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot to deal with when so many people are needing a safe haven in so many different locations across the province. And what's the weather been like? Because clearly I was I was watching some video from Edson earlier and you can hear the wind. I mean, you can hear the wind whipping up and you think and you could see the the fire in the in, in the foreground. I mean, it's not it looks like it's going to be get, get worse before it gets better. It all changed around noon. It was mild temperatures little wind. We got there and obviously, you know, you can smell the smoke, but we didn't even really see evidence of a fire except for maybe a seemingly more cloudy sky and then as soon as it was noon the wind picked up like a rocket it was just it was like ripping through the community and and as you said you hear it in all the videos from surrounding areas also experiencing wildfires um and and the fire chief in drayton valley told us that this is just playing the most significant part it's pushing the fire if the wind changes it pushes the fire in a direction that fire crews are not expecting it sparks fires kilometers away if if it if the embers go far enough it's just creating this really unpredictable situation for a lot of um crews we're in alberta right now where wildfire the wildfire situation is changing rapidly uh, and has been all day there are more than 90 active wildfires now in the province at least 30 burning out of control uh tens of thousands of people have been ordered evacuated this evening uh the big one late late today was in uh yellowstone or around around the town of edson i should say um morgan black is a dig- digital journalist with global news edmonton and 630 ched she's been covering other fire another wildfire and evacuation in uh drayton valley over the course of the day is headed back towards Edmonton. Yeah, new alerts coming out, Morgan. One east of Edmonton, another one that sort of expanded around uh, the Hamlet event whistle, I guess, west of Edmonton. So this is hard to keep up with. What What is fueling? Is this all being fueled by the same, I mean, by the same, obviously the same really dry weather? The conditions are, I gather, dangerous for wildfires right now, clearly. Yeah, the province did touch on that during a news conference they had early today around 10.30 a.m. So the Alberta government says um, almost all of these wildfires that are burning right now are caused by humans. Uh, and then in order to try and put a damper on this, they put in a fire ban, an ATV ban in the forest protection area, and then just sending out a very clear message, urging people to be careful, be cognizant that it is so windy, it is so dry in the province, it is so hot in the province. Um, because really, I mean, a lot of these, if the province is saying, are, are man-made. Um, they need the cooperation of, of folks to, to get on board with, with being very fire-safe. 
in terms of being able to fight these, uh, well, just looking at the number of fires that are burning, you'd have to think resources must be stretched very thin, even for a province that knows it's for its wildfires. Yes, and we've heard that from um, you know local firefighters in Edmonton. I did a, I did a story about a wildfire, a grass fire that ended up being relatively small compared to some of these other wildfires we're seeing. And, and we talked to crews, and they said that they are just so stretched thin locally in Edmonton because they've they've seen um, a number of fires pop up in a number of places. And then when you look beyond that, outside of the you know the formal municipalities, the cities, uh, lots of fire crews that are really just trying to be everywhere at once right so um we did see uh ground crews come into drayton valley they asked for more help on the ground and in the air we saw water bombers coming through a number of times uh so you know everybody is just pulling very very long hours behind the scenes the crews fighting these fires but they're doing their best because they want they want people to you know have a home to go back to yeah, and I guess reinforcements, uh, it was announced today, they are bringing in reinforcements. I expect if it continues this way, more will be on the way as well, but about 80 from Quebec and Ontario coming in to try to help out. Yeah, and Ottawa also, I believe, mentioned it's on standby to help as these flames continue to spread across the province. Right, and you're in the middle of an election, too, to top it all off, right? I mean, there's something else going on here where, you know, there, there's other stuff happening in the province. And this, you know, obviously the, the, the function of government continues even during an election. Um, but, I mean, this is going to, this is becoming a crisis, is it not? Yes, and, and you know, it, it is strange to see a government news conference such as the one that we saw this morning um, when, when we're in that election period, right, seeing... Um, Premier Daniel Smith, not uh, UCP leader Daniel Smith, having to to come out right. and make these these governmental statements because there is an emergency happening and 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 the government is is needing to keep people abreast in a way um, that I mean certainly I know we've had fires larger than than the wildfires that are burning across the province right now but the but the number of them is really just prompting this um, emergency that that politicians are needing to respond to as you said in, in another busy time where we're trying to cover the election it's some. Um, it's um, it's it's a lot. It is. What you be, what what are we looking out for? The, the forecast for the weekend, I suppose. I mean, earlier on, it seemed as if this is not the weather is not cooperating for the time being. But uh, what's it look like for the next forty eight hours? This is a great question because I was wondering that myself as I was driving back into Edmonton right. and seeing another plume of smoke, and it looks like it may rain Saturday night, and then Sunday it is supposed to be a rainy day which is what everybody has been asking for i mean every crew every reeve every mayor every official every communications director everyone's just saying we need rain that is the one thing that's going to put a damper on on these flames uh, so yeah so sunday uh showers all day i think it's only going to be a high of 13 so it's finally that that cooler weather that is more characteristic in the month i mean we have snow in May sometimes in Edmonton, right? Um, so, yeah, and then in right. Sunday night, uh, I believe it's a 60% chance of showers, and then Saturday night it's supposed to rain as well. Right, and, and Morgan, you'll know this for, for listeners out there because it's hard to keep track of where all these fires are, what all these evacuation orders are, where you're supposed to go, what you're supposed to do. Uh, what's the best place? There's usually a centralized spot where you can find all that information. What's the one you rely on so listeners know? I mean, I do, if, if you're in a particular part of Alberta, I do think that the um, individual municipalities do keep their social medias quite up to date. So I find that to be really reliable. Um, obviously, the emergency alerts that come directly to your phone are, are pretty good as well. Um, and then uh, I have always have to point us to your local news station because we are 
we are here, right? We are doing our best to provide the latest updates. We know um, who to ask uh, the right questions to. And so I think if people are um, wondering what's happening right now, then that is, those are some of the best places to go. Absolutely. Morgan Black, thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks. My pleasure. Take care. It has been a hectic and uh, scary night for some in parts of Alberta. Many, many wildfires burning out of control in that province, at least 30 last at last we checked. And thousands, tens of thousands at this point of people being evacuated. The town of Edson uh, was the latest one this afternoon. Yellowhead County, about 15,000 people in and around there, west of Edmonton, uh, being asked to leave that community because of the threat of a wildfire. Uh, we were speaking um, earlier with uh, reporter uh, Morgan Black of... Um, of 6.30 Chet and Global News Edmonton. She'd spent the day in Drayton Valley, which was also had evacuations last night. There are others taking place. Lots of alerts going out still to people. So be be aware of those, regardless if you're somewhere in and around those areas tonight. Um, May wildfires, you know, for people who live in different provinces, it may seem early, but it's not. If you think back seven years ago uh, to the Fort McMurray wildfire, it happened right about this time of year. In fact, it happened exactly this time of year. Uh, the province is vulnerable to wildfires at this time of year. And um, there's been a lot of heat. It's been very dry and very hot in parts of Alberta of late. Uh, just how difficult is this particular situation? How can you fight that many fires? with resources stretched thin. And what does this mean perhaps for the rest of the spring and summer? Jed Beverly is an expert in wildfires, a former wildland firefighter herself and an assistant professor at the University of Alberta. And she joins me now. Jen, thank you. Hi, good evening. So tell me what we're, what we're seeing tonight, because it, it just seems like an awful lot of stuff erupting all at once. And I can't remember seeing that many happen so quickly. Yeah, I mean, conditions right across uh, the province of Alberta are just off the charts in terms of exceptionally dry conditions. We've got high gusty winds um, and, uh, yeah, it's been, been a very tough few days for um, for both uh, residents who are impacted by the string of evacuations, but as well for the fire management agency here that in the municipalities that are, are managing these fires. How is that? Because I know that, for instance, um, you know, when you have a, a massive, if you have a one massive fire in one spot, it demands that it be fought a certain way. And I'm clearly no expert. But with this many little ones erupting, and then, I mean, then you have resources stretched very thin. What do you do in, the, in that situation? How do, you, how do you triage your resources? Yeah, well, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of the, of, uh, the, the province of Alberta, um, but, you know, they they train and um, this is what they do, you know, to, to manage uh, these kinds of high fire load conditions. Um, they are pre-positioning resources into priority areas and um, they are following their set objectives in terms of, of uh, choosing where to where to uh, send their resources. And, you know, the, the number one, of course, is public safety. And um, that's that's the main priority right now is protecting uh, communities that are being threatened. Tell me a bit about why spring in Alberta. I mean, Fort Mac uh, was seven years ago this week, I think, if I look back correctly, uh, back in 2016. Yeah, right. What is it about what is it about spring in Alberta that makes it so vulnerable to these mm -hmm. sorts of fires? I think, you know, having grown up in Quebec, um, it was different, right? It seemed different at the time. Forest fires were more of a summer activity. 
Right. And so, you know, the, the spring fire season in Alberta has been associated with some, as you mentioned, some some major uh, wildfire disasters in the Fort McMurray one. Uh, you're right. It, it was uh, you know, th- basically this exact time of year uh, back in 2016. Uh, we also had a, a, a quite a devastating spring fire that impacted uh, Slave Lake in, in 2011. Uh, and the spring fire season here is, is problematic for a number of reasons. And you're probably the main thing to mention is that the spring fire season is, is largely driven by fires caused by people. Uh, lightning right. fires don't really kick in as a main ignition source in, until June. You do get some you know, lightning ignitions in the spring, but really uh, most of the devastating spring fires uh, and certainly a lot of the fires that we're seeing right now are, are caused by people. And what we have is a situation that the snow melts, uh, and if you have warm conditions uh, that follow, and we've definitely had abnormally warm temperatures uh, throughout recent weeks, um, and and then the forests haven't greened up yet, so you've got really dry, tinder dry, crispy um, leaves and needles on the forest floor. You've got dry, cured grass, extremely flammable, extremely easy to ignite with even fleeting sources of ignition and the, the kinds of ignitions that people cause tend to be quite fleeting. So uh, it could be sparks right. from a piece of machinery. Um, it could be an off highway vehicle that's, uh, you know, hot gases or the muffler coming into contact with taller cured uh, dry grass. That's enough to get a fire going under these ex- really? extremely dry yeah. conditions. Yeah. Cause you always think of, you know, campfires or matches or so on, or, or, you know, lit, you know, cigarettes, but it, it's that it's that dry it is yeah absolutely and and you know the thing that that's happened right now that we're experiencing is this um this this warming and drying trend has has it's uniform really across the entire province so you have a right. massive land base that is pretty much anywhere if if you have an ignition source and some you know dead fuel dry fuel on the forest floor or in, in grasslands you're going to get a fire and you combine that with the high winds that we also get in the spring and that we're experiencing right now in many parts of the province, these uh, elevated gusty wind conditions, you get a quick ignition and then that wind, the fire can take off very quickly Um, under these really dry conditions. It means that a lot of that fuel is available to burn and that means higher intensity fires that spread fast with these winds and uh, can quickly exceed um, suppression capabilities. Yeah, I, I imagine with the high winds, if they shift too, then your suppression capability—you have to shift your entire. Uh, I mean, this is these are large pieces of territory. It's hard to. Move. I mean, we've been in those areas. It's hard to move around. You can't just. You can't just start. You can't move quickly. In other words, it's uh, it, it becomes a bit of a guessing game. Yeah, winds are you know one of the the most unpredictable aspects of the fire environments and. Um, they they can change suddenly and and we've seen that and you know this uh, a, a certain kinds of weather patterns can cause the flanks or sides of a fire to suddenly the wind shifts and now that's the head of the fire and because it's more elongated uh, now you the fire can sort of jump in size very quickly when you get these wind shifts and they obviously pose a threat to to safety uh, not not just to the public but also to personnel working on these fires and so when you've got shifty and, and strong winds, it's uh, you know it can it can severely limit our ability to, um, to 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 put those fires out. 
I guess that's a word of warning to people being asked to evacuate too, that what you see in front of you mightn't be, mightn't reflect, what you see with your own eyes mightn't reflect the nature of the, uh, the size of the threat that's around you. Yeah, and I, I can't emphasize that enough that um, the conditions that we have right now in Alberta are absolutely explosive from a fire behavior perspective. Um, if you are in a, an area where there has been uh, an evacuation order or alert, um, I, I would strongly urge people to follow those those uh, alerts and orders. And uh, definitely in, in the case of an order, you want to leave the area um, as quickly as possible. And for communities that don't currently have any alerts or orders in place, um, you should still think about being prepared because as you know, with the conditions that we have, and it is right across the province, these situations can evolve very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, all it takes is, uh, you know, an ignition source and, and these fires can get away very quickly. Be ready to leave. Heed the orders and the warnings that are coming out. Uh, make sure you're tuned in to an information source, whether it's Internet or the radio um, and be talking to your neighbors and uh, getting in contact with each other. Um, you know, the, the only thing we can do in a lot of these situations is get people uh, out of the way. Um, and and this isn't these aren't the kinds of fires that you can weather the storm. Uh, you want to leave the area um, if you're advised to do so. Yeah, I've noticed, I mean, the only time I've ever had a fire alert, I think I was in Banff. And, and it is. It, it seems like Alberta has found a fairly effective way of alerting people to these things. Um, and I guess that's been learned through, through experience, right? Yeah, I, I have heard some reports, some feedback from people that um, the, the automatic sort of alerts that are going out to cell phones, um, th- there has been some interruptions. Some people aren't getting those um, okay. necessarily. And uh, even on the, the provincial dashboard website, because of the enormous uh, number of fires that are burning right now and the number of evacuations that are going on and the volatility of the situation, a lot of people are accessing this website. Um, I myself have been accessing it throughout the day to check on the situation. And, and a couple of times I wasn't able to to load the, the web page. And I, I think they've, they've been trying to resolve that. But, um, yeah, so there may, there may be challenges going to your usual go-to source, be that your cell phone or, um, or the web, uh, the internet site that the, the province hosts. Um, radio is another place where you might be getting alerts or the municipality's website as well might be um, experiencing less of a load than uh, the, the provincial website. Um, but yeah, just seeing in communication with your, your local authorities and your neighbours, uh, I strongly encourage. We're talking about uh, the wildfire situation in Alberta, which has been fast moving today. There have been alerts all day, evacuations in new areas, uh, major ones, including in and around the town of Edson, that's west of Edmonton. Um, And we're talking right now with Jen Beverly, who's an expert in wildfire. She's an assistant professor at the University of Alberta. Jen, just looking at how much we've learned over the years, because I gather we've we've learned a lot from the past, but it seems that um, there are just certain conditions that we're, we're powerless to fight against. But I know that through the work that you do, that try to, trying to mitigate this fire risk is something that, we, that we're getting better at and something we try to do every year, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think going back to the Kelowna wildfire in 2003, this was really a, a turning point. Uh, people started to take note of the potential um, threat that wildfires pose to, um, to communities. And, and there was a real shift uh, to embrace proactive mitigation efforts. 
um, that can be done in advance of, of the wildfires to try to reduce the potential negative impacts. And so, you know, that's things like uh, fire smart fuel treatments and um, uh, provincial agencies, There's, you know, FireSmart BC, FireSmart Alberta, these are great resources, websites um, to go to and learn about uh, those kind of, the, the full suite of things that can be done in addition to just responding to fires when they happen. But those mitigation efforts, uh, certainly here in Alberta, have focused heavily on uh, managing fuels, uh, uh, efforts to reduce the fuels uh, strategically and proactively uh, in and around communities, but uh, also looking at ways of, of cooling down the forest. Um, trying to manage the, the, the force, the age classes and that kind of thing to create a patchwork that might be more resilient uh, to, 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 to fires. Um, so, yeah, there definitely has been this, this uh, increasing interest in, uh, in, 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 in taking proactive measures in advance of, of these kinds of fire seasons to try to introduce resilient, uh, resilient communities and, and forests. Um, and, there's, you know, there's lots of things that homeowners can do just on their own properties. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you that because sometimes you see these big fires and think, okay, well, that's just going to, you know, that's going to, there's not much an individual homeowner can do, but, but there is, there are, there is quite a bit that individual homeowners can do to, to, to lessen the risk in and around their own properties. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we understand the processes uh, involved when a fire um, causes structure damage. And, and for the most part, you know, these ignitions in the built environment are happening from the embers that are carried, you know, little bits of burning uh, debris and, and pieces of bark and needles that are carried up aloft in the convection column. And they're deposited ahead of the fire. Um, and, and those can rain down on a neighborhood when a fire encroaches on a community. And, and it's those embers uh, coming down on roofs and in eaves troughs and, uh, and igniting uh, or being swept underneath of decks and those kinds of things. And so, um, everything from roofing material, building materials, um, you know, the way to uh, limit uh, embers um, getting in under decks and that kind of thing. That's that's the kind of stuff that's spelled out in the FireSmart um, manuals, and that gives a lot of good pointed advice for how you can make your your property and your structure less receptive to those kinds of ignitions. Um, and and then there's also community at the community scale, and, and a lot of my work and my research. Um, is focused on trying to inform the community scale uh, mitigation efforts. So that's where you, you may have seen in, in some communities, uh, certainly in Western Canada, um, you'll see this fairly frequently. There's There's been efforts to thin out the forests uh, that abut a community. So directly adjacent to communities, those forests can be thinned out, um, removing the lower limbs of trees, uh, clearing out some of the debris on the forest floor manually, um, and sometimes you'll even have prescribed burns conducted to kind of clear under safe conditions to clear out those those fuels. But it's an effort to go in there and, and remove some of the fuel so that if a fire does come into that community zone, it's not going to be as intense. It'll you know the hope is that these treatments will um, inhibit uh, the crown fires. So those are the fires that are spreading through the suspended aerial fuels and the tree canopies. Um, and right. when you thin out the stand, it makes it harder for the fire to get up into the canopy. And, and if you can keep the fires on the surface, those ones uh, crews can, can put out on the ground because uh, they're less intense. Right. What will you be looking for over the next 24, 48 hours? I guess everyone's just watching the weather, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, students on my team, so um, my PhD student, Air Forbes, she's been running analysis uh, all day. 
sending over some maps in the hopes that we can provide some informative information to the provincial agency about right. you know communities and uh, that are currently um, in the vicinity of, of fires in the province, potentially threatened by these fires. And what we look at are, are mapping out uh, vulnerable directions that fires could encroach on these communities. And this is a kind of strategic analysis, again, that, that ideally you're doing it well in advance of any fire. Um, but mm-hmm. but we're, we're running those assessments right now and uh, trying to provide some of that, um, that insight. I mean, the agencies are obviously... Uh, doing their own analysis as well and monitoring these fires. But um, the kinds of of, uh, sort of strategic assessments that we're doing really are intended to help uh, identify early on where the vulnerabilities are. So, you know, right today in Alberta, right across Alberta, uh, predominantly winds blowing out of the southeast. So we were able to quickly look up um, from our prior assessments, you know, hundreds of communities in Alberta, which ones have vulnerable fire pathways uh, to the southeast, right? And, and so mm-hmm. some communities do and yeah. some don't. Um, so this is the kind of thing that you can also look at from a strategic perspective and uh, trying to identify where there are vulnerabilities. And, and ideally, you know, that's helping to guide uh, some of the resource prioritization. Yeah, as you mentioned, the, the safest thing here is to get people out of the way, right? Um, and, and yeah, we'll be watching the weather over the rest of the weekend for sure. Uh, Jen Beverly, thank you so much for your insight on this. Well, thank you. With the scepter in her right hand and in her left hand, the awe Queen Elizabeth passes from the Abbey, consecrated and dedicated to her life work by the solemn and time-hallowed ritual of coronation. Wow. Uh, 70 years ago was the last time uh, there was a coronation of a British monarch, of course, Queen Elizabeth II. You heard it there. And just listening to it reminds you of how long ago it was. Uh, Fast forward now seven decades. And here we are about five hours away from coverage beginning on Global News uh, with Donna Friesen, who's in London, of the coronation. And if my calculations are right, we're about six hours away from um, King Charles and Queen Consort Camilla leaving Buckingham Palace to make their way towards Westminster Abbey. So history is hours away. It's upon us, essentially. Um, Now, this is a ceremony that goes back more than a thousand years. Uh, It's been held at Westminster Abbey since 1066. But this one has been updated. This whole... um, celebration really but this whole ceremony will will have been uh, updated somewhat for modern times it is shorter faster and smaller so a two kilometer procession uh leaving westminster abbey instead of eight as it was in 1953 a two-hour coronation service at the abbey instead of three hours as it was 70 years ago and 2500 guests including the prime minister uh the governor general uh, the high commissioner in london as well from canada as part of our contingent down from 8,000 guests in 1953 but watching the procession after the service is, of course, one of the best ways to watch history in the making. And because it's a shorter process than it was in the past, there are fewer spots, uh, obviously, with which you can actually get a good spot to watch the procession go by. Um, There will be a big Canadian contingent in the procession itself that leaves Westminster Abbey when the service is done um, at about noon local time. So that'll be around 7 a.m., I guess, or maybe Don't quote me on the math. I'll get that all for you later because we're doing 
jumping around in time zones here. Um, but uh, they will be using a well-known golden carriage. That's a, the Gold State Coach is its official name. It's uh, was built, I think, for 1831, or it's been used in uh, coronation since 1831. And uh, there'll be 45 members of the Canadian military that will be marching alongside, as well as members of the RCMP. Uh, Jeremy Hansen, the astronaut, will be our flag bearer for that. The Governor General will be there as the Prime Minister, as will the Prime Minister. And one of the people who have a real uh, position of honor there is Captain Broderick Smith of the Royal Canadian Air Force. He'll be walking alongside the Gold State Coach, carrying the newly uh, crowned king and queen back to Buckingham Palace. And he spoke to Crystal Gomancing of Global News in London yesterday. Something I never would have expected uh, with this once-in-a-lifetime experience. Uh, my grandmother was, as a kid, at the coronation of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll just be very special for me. The whole experience has been completely surreal. Um, I think as a, a 10 or 12-year-old, like at 12 years old, I joined the Royal Canadian Army Cadets. So I think this is something that I would have aspired to do as a ceremonial activity like this. Uh, so it's just phenomenal. There's Captain Broderick Smith of the RCAF. He'll be alongside the Gold State coach with the newly crowned King and Queen tomorrow as it makes its way back to Buckingham Palace from Westminster Abbey. And you know who'll be watching on the sidelines right there, not far from Buckingham Palace, is someone that I bumped into into in London many years ago while working. We kept in touch, and I saw her again during the Queen's funeral. She had come out to stay out overnight to watch that unfold, to watch history unfold there. She is a Canadian, and she has pitched a tent along the Mall in London. That's the street. You'll recognize the road that leads away from Buckingham Palace with all the flags down the side. It is where all of these processions take place. And I wondered again, I, again, I wondered whether she'd be out there again. And indeed she is. She got there yesterday with her tent, her Canadian flag, her warm clothes, some Prosecco. Her good friend Bill has flown in from Toronto for the occasion. And I caught up a little earlier tonight from her prime spot of the mall, so she wouldn't keep everyone awake tonight with our conversation. Uh, here is Mary Foster. Mary, thank you so much. Oh, it's good to chat with you. It's too bad you're not here uh, here for the celebration this time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm there in spirit. I'm there in spirit. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll try and immerse you in the spirit of the mall right now. Yeah, tell me, where did you, did you find a good spot? Where, whereabouts have you found yourself? Okay, so I'm on the Mall. I'm just uh, directly across from Clarence House and St. Right. James Palace. So quite close to the palace. We've got a really good spot. We are first in row to the Mall. So we are right at the bar barricades. We've got some the Canadian flag hanging yes. uh, proudly. And um, yeah, it is very busy here tonight. There's probably six or seven tents deep now and then chairs and people behind it. So people are coming a lot earlier than they have for like a platinum jubilee and stuff so right you've done this i mean again you've done this before how many times have you camped out for one of these for one of these big occasions for one of these um well her majesty's funeral we did the jubilee not a court this is my yeah. first coronation indeed and uh we've done weddings so yeah we've done we've done several several events and and my friend Fly, bill flies in from toronto for all of them and uh, we learn each time of things to bring things not to bring and how sharp our elbows need to be so yeah elbow is pretty sharp and travel relatively light but what is it that you bring to camp out at one of these things so i bring i have a little like beach tent that could 
kind of fit two people, not but not quite. Kind of kind of sleep in there, sleeping mats. Uh, didn't bring a sleeping bag this time, but I brought a thick dry robe, which I'm wearing, which is great and waterproof. So it's like a walking sleeping bag and a few blankets and a few cocktails and snacks and kind of head out to uh, the store to replenish what we need as we go. Did you do this? Did you ever do this when you were younger back in Canada, like waiting out for concert tickets or any of those things? Or has this really been a royal thing for you? Definitely a royal thing. My mother thinks I'm absolutely bonkers, to be honest. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember getting up really early in the morning, whether it was for any of the royal weddings, obviously with the time change or funerals, you'd get up at O'Dark 100 to, to watch them. It's, you know, I remember being at the cottage, being all dressed up and, and kind of putting on fancy dress, which may include kitchen rubber gloves and, and made up hats that we did just to kind of celebrate that and have a, have a have, make it really fun event getting up at four or five in the morning. I always thought, oh, it'd be so great to be here. And I remember watching Will and Kate's wedding in, uh, we lived in Whistler at that point. And, uh, you know, up at two in the morning with some mimosas to start and a newborn baby. And we watched it and said, oh, it would be so amazing to be there. And little did I know, not long later, we'd, we'd move to the UK. And I've had that opportunity several times. So, you know, it's just one of these things where there's so, the atmosphere is incredible. Everyone is very positive and these things don't happen often. So to have a chance to be a part of it, it's kind of fun. Yeah, what is the mood like? Because one would always think, I mean, I've been there, I've covered them, obviously, and, and the mood is always very congenial. Not always. I mean, that many people in one place, people can get on each other's nerves, right? But in general, the mood seems really great. How is it this time around? Yeah, no, it is It is really great. Obviously, it's different than the funeral because, you know, it's a different occasion and, and people, there's, yeah, people weren't as, you know, emotional about it, that this is a celebration. Everyone here is, you know, supporting the king. You're not camping out if you don't support the king. It gets testy starting soon. People kind of jockey for, for positions and they'll come in and they'll like literally try and sneak like under your arms to get in front of you when you've been here for three days. And that doesn't usually go over well. And um, so you just have to kind of set boundaries and make sure you have space and, you know, people try and befriend you or they try and bribe you to get up front and it can be really, really weird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, if I give you this and I have this percent, I'm like, I don't know. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. It's just, you know, and then people just being really unkind and just like, you know, you have to go to the washroom and they come up. Oh, I took your spot. It's first come, first serve kind of thing. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? Like, just not nice but it, it is what it is a little survival of the fittest out there i remember for um yeah. during the queen's funeral procession crowd con control could be a bit fickle they open and close things and all of a sudden your perfect spot becomes a not so perfect spot yeah that's exactly what happened at the funeral on the mall we're safe because all these barricades are exactly right and they have a they have two sets of barricades and there's quite a there's probably a three meter gap um between them um, and they won't move, but where we were on Parliament Square for the funeral, um, they moved them in the middle of the night, kind of woke you up at three in the morning and moved these barricades and like people ran. And, you know, one lady who had arrived completely unprepared, I let her use my sleeping bag. She was so cold. I said, oh, here, have this. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then she got in front of me and, and she'd been there for like three hours and said, well, it's first come, first serve. And you shouldn't have brought, you know, stuff with you. You didn't seem to mind. I had stuff when I was able to give you a sleeping bag to wow. wrap you up because you brought nothing. You know, it's just that kind of thing is not nice. But no, but it, but, but it the exception happen right? all not the time. The, the exception. It is. It is the exception. It is the exception. Um, and we I've met so many Canadians here. Just I mean, obviously, so many Canadians living in London, and then people. Everyone knows someone who lives in Canada, and 
often they'll come and say, can I take a picture of you? Because my, my friend's son lives in Canada. I'm like, okay. Oh, oh. You know, just kind of, That's just right, because you have that, some... that big Canadian flag out on your tent, of course. Yes, Easy to I've spot. Got my flags on my tent. But yeah, it's kind of funny. But everyone has a story about Canada. And then some don't understand why, why you would be here. Kind of knowing they're in the Commonwealth, but not really understanding, you know, We'd see the queen on our money and on our stamps and, you know, kind of been part of our culture and upbringing as well. And, and if you haven't been to Canada, you may not have seen that. So talking to people about that, understanding, you know, the king is our head of state as well. So I, I gather that the flags of all the realms, the 14 now, are actually up on the mouse. So there should be a Canadian flag around are, you somewhere. Hanging port, up, it's right um, at the front. The Canadian and the Australian flag are right out in front. They look absolutely gorgeous. It's just uh, just lovely to see them. We're speaking with Canadian Mary Foster, who lives in London, I should be fair, but her friend Bill, who lives in Toronto, has flown into a company here, as he often does. They are right now on the mile. That is uh, right in London. You'll recognize the road. It's, it's the one you see in every one of these major royal events. The coronation procession uh, will travel down it tomorrow. And, of course, everyone there waiting, t- several tents deep now, waiting to catch a glimpse of history tomorrow. Mary, tell me about the mood around the new king, because obviously it's been a tough winter in, in the UK. We know where we read over here that cost of living, there's been some labor strife and so on. Does this feel like a bit of an uplifting day? Uh, I'm sure it does where you are. It certainly does, you know, where I am, because anyone here is is supportive of the monarchy and the king. But obviously, no, not everyone is not far off. in I think Trafalgar Square, there will be protests tomorrow. Um, they've said they'll be peaceful, but loud. You know, this is a man who's been training for this job for almost 75 years and is turning 75. He's starting the biggest job of his life and he's got massive shoes to fill. He was out today on uh, walking around. I don't imagine you saw him. You might have heard that he was out walking around. He, uh, he greeted I, I a few people. I saw him. Yeah. I saw him, but not, not close enough to, to, to meet him. But one of the ladies sitting behind us, she, she had run over um, in time. They, there was some buzz that he might be doing that and did get to shake his hand and, and meet him. So. Um, really exciting uh, to see that. I was hoping he'd do a walkabout. It's just too bad he didn't quite come, you know, just a little bit closer. We weren't that far away. But right. We'll and see I him guess tomorrow the, and then the coach. Yeah, uh, that coach travels incredibly slowly. So you do get yes. a really good a chance to really. Yes. Uh, what, are, what are the beauties? I mean, we've, of- we've seen him about four or five times a day, at least going by, you know, in, in, his, in his car and comes and goes. So we have seen a, quite a bit of him, but um, I can't even imagine. You know, being across from Clarence House and you see the lights and the windows on, the windows were open a while ago and, you know, what his, his night is tonight. You know, you have a night before a big night for yourself, let alone one that's being broadcast to hundreds right of millions of people. Yeah, with um, a bunch of people I, line, lining up, camping out to see you. Yeah, yeah. camping out, out your window. They've been hearing the, the piper every morning at nine playing and stuff. So, yeah, I, I just wonder what, what his evening will be like and how you can keep yourself calm when you have so much riding on tomorrow. Well, Mary, I, I guarantee you it'll be warmer than yours. <laughs> it'll be warmer than yours. <laughs> yes, so, it will so, be. So tell me about, I mean, uh, I guess the only thing everyone's hoping for is, and this is always a bit of a uh, a bit of a game changer in London, is the weather to, to hold out, right? Because we've seen there's could be rain. Yes, the forecast is not um, as lovely as I'd like it to be. We had some thunder showers today. We just had a shower not long ago. So tomorrow, this it's forecast rain a lot between kind of 11 and 6 p.m. But whether that's full rain, whether that's heavy rain, or whether that's a little shower, I don't know because I just got to see what's on my phone. So I'm hoping that by tomorrow, the weather gods will be in our favor and, and uh, you know, the rain, showers will go away and, and we have a glorious day. But yeah. if not, well, we're not made of sugar. We won't melt.
as my no, mother always you're... told me, and we'll we'll make it through. You're we Canadian. Just we can handle this. Wet. We can absolutely handle this. Handle this. Yeah. So, what is the the best part of doing this, and what is the worst part about doing this? The best part is yeah, just meeting all the people from everywhere and hearing their stories. You know why why they love the royal family, and everyone has a different story, which is which is great. You know, spending time with friends. We're camped out this time with. A mother and her son, who is a, a, a royal, he's got a massive royal Instagram account, who's 17 yeah. from California. And we were we met them at the Jubilee last year. And so we've, we kept in touch and we're next to them. And, and have, that's been a lot of fun. So I'd say that that's the best part. The worst part I could do with more than two hours sleep. And I, I like, you know, some people are getting more, but it just depends who you're lucky enough to sit next to and, and what their, what their um, sleep patterns are, or what their drinking or party pa- pa- plans are. So um, we haven't lucked out this time, but well, Mary, I mean, I've I've met your kids. They were tiny. They were much younger when I met them. But uh, yeah, yes. I know you're used to the odd sleepless night, but maybe this is a little yeah. tougher when given the cold and everything. Well, we'll be watching uh, for you tomorrow because, uh, of course, I think all eyes will be on the procession uh, when it comes yep. back, and we'll be watching for your. I guess you have to take everything down, right? You do have to take everything down. Yeah, so. we have like the funeral. We didn't have to for previous events, so this is the first one. Well. The funeral was the first one we had to have everything down and put away by six and we had to stand i actually right. would say that's one of the hardest things we had to stand literally squeezed in for eight between 5 a.m and 2 p.m um right. so we kind of we kind of stop any any anything by mouth after midnight or something try and make a quick quick trip to the loo in the early hours because there's really if you go it's you don't know if people will let you back in to get your spot so you don't want to risk that and just standing in one spot for a long time with a lot of people around you is is not always fun if they're if they're pushing but no. you know at least we have a we have just the barricade in front of us so it's not just facing into other people so that kind of gives us a little bit of feeling well, of space anyway well, you speak of this like someone who's who's you're now a veteran of these so it sounds like you know yes. exactly how it's all gonna although i guess everyone is a bit different that's that's the uh yeah, everyone's a bit different it just depends who's who's around you and how you know how they try and get along with other people and most people are, are great and, and amenable and then you get the odd one that you know makes it more difficult so hopefully i think you know life people in a nutshell know. barry life in a, absolutely life in that's a yeah nutshell. very life good ben yeah that's absolutely it life well, a box of chocolates you know exactly well we'll be, we'll be watching for you tomorrow as always good luck i hope you i uh, hope you get some sleep and uh, yeah, you. you'll get to watch history firsthand what how do you how can you top that yeah i'm very excited it should be a great day we're just hours away at this point, uh, by my calculations, about uh, five and a half hours. Is that right? Five and a half? You know, I, I should be better at math, but it's Friday night. So, yes, it's uh, four and a half hours, three and a half hours, five and a half hours before uh, coverage begins on global news of the coronation and about six and a half hours before Charles and Camilla uh, get into the the Diamond Jubilee coach uh, to be taken to Westminster Abbey for the coronation, the first coronation of a British monarch, of course, since 1953, when Charles's mum was coronated, was 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 crowned, I should say. Um, someone just pointed out you shouldn't say coronated, and it gets stuck in your head like that. That's what happens with words. Uh, Charles was there, of course. He was just a boy. He was about four when his mum uh, was crowned back in 1953. Uh, but he will be receiving his uh, he'll be his coronation ceremony at the age of 75. He becomes the new monarch tomorrow. Of course, um, he's already the monarch, by the way. He's he's officially crowned tomorrow. Um, 
what's always amazed me about these sorts of events, and I've covered quite a few of them in London, of course, the Olympics, the Diamond Jubilee, the Queen's Funeral, is the security operation because they have heads of state and dignitaries and other VIPs coming in from around the world for these events. And how do you manage security? How do you manage security and still allow people to enjoy the day? How do you manage security without turning the place into a fortress, essentially? It's a complex situation. And tomorrow will be, apparently, the largest security operation in the city's history. 11,500 officers will be on duty uh, tomorrow. A lot of them are already out there. They get out there very early uh, and they start shutting stuff down. Uh, Over 29,000 deployments in the lead up. Uh, to it. It's being called Operation Golden Orb. It's been in the works for absolutely, uh, for months now, I'm at six months, I believe. And it is a multi-layered security operation. Here is Met Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley explaining the scope of their duties on Saturday to Sky News. And this is an immense operation. And in fact, tomorrow, Saturday, um, it'd be the biggest single deployment we've done in London ever for this operation. There'll be um, well over 11,500 officers involved. What the public will see will be that visible front layer of officers stood in a sort of dignified ceremonial way. But behind that, there are layers of officers working covertly, observing from different places. There's been intelligence effort to look for people who want to spoil the event. Um, and then behind that, we've got some fantastic colleagues, largely staff colleagues, doing immense logistics work because feeding all these people and housing all these people is is massive. So it's been a tremendous operation, and um, we are doing everything we possibly can do. Uh, Sir Sir Mark Rowley is the Metropolitan Police Commissioner describing just the scope of uh, the police operation tomorrow uh, in and around, well, throughout London, really, but specifically in and around Westminster Abbey and Buckingham Palace. They're really not that far apart. It's about, uh, if you think about it, I think it's about a one and a half square, two square kilometer area right around that uh, that core where the Houses of Parliament are, Westminster Abbey, uh, Buckingham Palace, and so on and so forth. Trafalgar Square and Canada House, Canada House aren't that far away from there. Uh, so it will be a very big day. One of the things I've always found really uh, astounding and impressive is that you don't really notice the security all that much. It's everywhere, but you don't see it the same way. I gather this time around uh, because, uh, and has been pointed out, unlike the funeral for the Queen, you know, Charles is, is uh, the new king, is, has his critics. There are critics of the monarchy. There will be peaceful protests. There were new laws, actually. A new law passed this week in England, perhaps sped up. Um, it wasn't originated for this event. It was, it, it, other things have happened there around protests. But to try to crack down a bit on the way protesters can block stuff. Uh, and it's come in now and it'll be enforced, I gather, in time for, uh, for tomorrow, for the coronation. Uh, because clearly the balance you want to strike here is to protect, but also not to impede, right? You want people to be able to watch and not notice that there's security everywhere. At the same time, there is security absolutely everywhere. No one knows that uh, better than my next guest. Philip Grindel is the founder and CEO of Diffuse Global, but he's a former Metropolitan Police Specialist Detective and counter-terrorist security coordinator, uh, and we've spoken to him on the show before, back when I was in England for the Queen's funeral. Philip, thank you. Yes, we, we seem to meet at uh, big events, don't we? It is. I mean, there's a reason for that. You know you know the inside. I, I don't know them that well other than covering them as a reporter, but you see them from a very different perspective. Uh, is this one, I mean, we spoke quite extensively about just how 
they had to manage security around the number of foreign dignitaries arriving for the Queen's funeral. Is this one very much a similar process? Is it essentially a rinse and repeat, or is this is this different in any way from what we saw about six months ago? It, there, there are similar issues, but I think there's a different agenda. I think certainly, there, as I understand it, there's more dignitaries and, and uh, et cetera coming, so that's going to pose an issue. I think one of the, the, the biggest differences is going to be that the Queen was somebody who was universally loved, and therefore even those anti-monarchists amongst us uh, or within the country, I think, refrained from disrupting the funeral. I think, I think that would have been seen as poor taste and, and, um, and not acceptable. However, on this occasion, I think we are going to see those people who are, you know, Republicans or whatever you want to call them, nationalists, whatever, more vocal, more visible. So that brings a new and a different, slightly different dilemma into it. So I think there's going to be more protests as opposed to the Queen's funeral, when, of course, there was no protests. I've, I've spoken to people in London to say they've noticed a different kind of police presence. It's more visible than it was yeah. during during the funeral. Well, I think I think it's because of the protest action that we're going to see. You know, the, the, the mood in the country is perhaps slightly different. Prince Charles or King Charles is, is not Her Majesty the Queen, and therefore there's a differences there. We we are going to see significantly more foreign dignitaries here. That's going to make an impact. It's a different process. There's it's you know there's seven seven thousand troops marching up and down. You know, the perfect terrorism target. We're going to see criminals acting in terms of trying to. Um, pickpocket and, and rob and all that sort of stuff for people as well. So, you know, everything from the kind of Armageddon scenario of terrorism right down to the sort of petty crime is going to be in play this this weekend. Uh, new new rules and new law came into place, I gather, earlier this week that allows police broader powers, at least when it comes to the to the policing those protests. Was that was that necessary? Well, I think that law was all was always coming in. It hasn't come in purely for right. this for this event. I think it's been perhaps brought forward because of the event. And I think part of the reason for that is we've seen a change in tactics of some of the protest groups, be they the eco groups that are are anti-oil and all that sort of stuff. And of course, the uh, Republicans and and anti-monarchists and all that sort of stuff. And one of their tactics is to um, disrupt incidents and to to get involved in traffic and, and stop traffic and all these sorts of things. And so the new legislation brings in various elements that will make some of their activities or some of their tactics to be offences. So things like locking on, um, which is a common tactic we see, right. that's now an offence. Somebody who's who's going equipped to lock on is now an offence. So, so they'll be identifying, there'll be teams out there identifying who these protest groups are. Some of them have already said that they won't be in any way disrupting events because they, I think they recognise that, that their cause is more harm than good. Others have refused to do or to commit to that. And so the police will be managing those groups and individuals. They'll know many of the individuals involved. And of course, they'll be stopping them and searching them for those sort of possessions and seeing, are they likely to commit offence? I have to say, I think think it's going to be interesting because I think I read somewhere yesterday that some of the anti-monarchist groups that are going to be wearing yellow are going to to position themselves in the crowd. And I, and I, I think it's going to be interesting how the crowd police that themselves. Yeah. And what you might actually get is people getting arrested to prevent breaches of the peace. Yeah, I've been in those crowds. It's very tight. It's very tight quarters, right? It's very tight quarters in the crowd itself. So if anything were to happen within the crowd, God forbid, it would be difficult to police it, uh, frankly, because the crowd is very tightly packed in. Yeah, but the, the, what, what they'll be looking for as well is 
the crowd to play a part in policing things. Right, of course. And so the, the, what they'll be saying, they'll be the, the young, the police officers will be encouraged to, you know, talk to the crowd, get to know the crowd where in their little pockets where they're policing so that the crowd, if they see something or someone that is suspicious or they're concerned about, they'll be encouraged to talk to the police and tell them I'm a bit concerned about that or that person's left the bag, etc. But I also think if the anti-monarchists start protesting within the crowds, the crowds may turn on them. Yeah. yeah. Because the crowds, generally speaking, are there as fans and, and as um, people that have, you know, many of them have flown in from around the world. I, I saw an interview this morning with someone from Canada, bizarrely. And, you know, so I think it's going to be interesting how how that happens if, if we do see the anti-monarchist groups. I mean, I mean you know, they're entitled to their, their opinion. And, and it, uh, you know, His Majesty the King would not want them to be stopped from protesting if that's their views. He, he would be completely against that. But there are there are tipping points where they you know where their behaviours if if they were to start trying to, to to disrupt the process or disrupt the processions that would then certainly mean uh, arrests will be made. Yeah, one of the things that uh, and I, I'm sure the king in this in this situation would at all costs want to avoid having this having any incidents you know have have this look too policed basically, which is a balancing act I'm sure for the security uh, side of things. I was surprised at, at you know at the at specifically the difference between the Diamond Jubilee and the Queen's funeral, how much more engaging the, the Met was, the Metropolitan on the ground, simply those doing the walking around. They talk to everybody now. I mean, they say hello to everybody. They engage people yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's 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 actually a very, I mean, it's a tactic, I know, but it's a very effective one, I think. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting that you, you think, you know, your, your, your experience was that that changed because that's what we've been told to do for 35 years. I mean, I can remember right. being, you know, doing that as a young PC 35 years ago and, and being told, talk to the crowd, get to know them, engage with them because you can't stand them like a robot and then expect them to talk to you and tell you things. You know, if you, if you, it's like anything, you know, if you build rapport and take the time and, and the police will be there, you know, hours before anything happens. So in many ways, you know, what else they're going to do? You know, it's a happy occasion. Many, many people are going to be absolutely thrilled to be here. For many, it's a historical occasion. You know, I don't think the weather's going to be great. So I think that that tends to have an impact on it. But yeah, the police will be encouraged. And it's not just the Met, you know, there's police from across the country being right. brought in to do this. And, and you know, so all the police from wherever they are in the country will be will be feeling very proud of what they're doing and feeling you know they'll be they'll be probably telling stories in years to come of being part of the king's coronation Philip Grindel is the founder and CEO of Diffuse Global. He's with us at this half hour talking about security arrangements for the big day coming up in just a few hours. I mean, obviously, the security is already in place for the coronation as we speak, or more or less. Uh, Philip, you've talked about this quite a bit uh, over over time. The nature of the threat has changed, right? We see this both when it comes to something that you know very well, which is protecting politicians, that, that the nature of who is out there who could be a threat has changed a lot and and how does how does that impact a big event such as this one uh, when you when you have fears of sort of lone wolves who have no real background that would suggest they may do something uh, violent at an occasion such as this yeah you, you're correct i mean things have changed from if we go back i suppose 20 years we you know the biggest threat was probably from the ira and and, and those sort of terrorist incidents then we had the kind of al-qaeda very organized very planned terrorist activities. And then we had the kind of ISIS movement, which changed quite dramatically in, in, in the way in which they instructed their followers, for want of a better word, to to not wait for instruction, to act independently. And they talked about, and we've seen, sadly, this happening, where they've been using vehicles as weapons. 
and where they've been using bladed articles and knives as weapons. But vehicles has always been something that we have been conscious of because, of course, in the older days, when you know, 30 or 20 or years ago, that would be in car bombs, etc. So, so one of the things that, that that will be in place and be in place in the early hours of the morning will be a series of hostile vehicle mitigation measures, which is it very, you know, simply is everything from road closures to very sophisticated hostile vehicle met- mitigation equipment that literally will stop a 30-ton lorry dead. And it's it's uh, it's quite remarkable when you see some of this equipment, how it can be literally six inches in the ground, but it will stop a lorry dead. You know, if you look around London, as an example, you will see, or you may not see, but you'll recognise things like benches on the side of the road. Um, they are actually hostile vehicle mitigation. They're designed to look like benches, so they're a, really? a, a useful thing. But actually, they're designed to stop vehicles going onto the pavement and running over people. So they're already in place in many places. But then there's a system of putting in this this kind of sterile corridor around the footprint, as it's called, to make sure that vehicles can't access it. And that will be shut down very early as the morning. Any vehicles that are within that will be removed because there'll be advanced notice that they shouldn't be there. So you'll end up with a very sterile environment where no vehicle that shouldn't be there will be to get access. So that's the vehicle piece. The, the, the greater piece for me is the, as you, you pointed out, the, the sort of lone actor armed with a knife. It's unlikely they're going to be armed with a handgun or a firearm because we don't, you know, firearms are more difficult to come by in the UK. And even if you are to get able to get a firearm, ammunition is not that easy to get by. And so that's why we've seen, you know, in terms of, for instance, politicians being attacked almost universally, it's been with knives. Because you can get, you know, a kitchen knife and walk out your house and off you go. And obviously we've seen, sadly, a number of young people being stabbed and killed in London with with knife attacks. So that's the bigger problem. And the way that they'll challenge that is they'll have groups of officers out there trained in behavioural detection. So what they're looking at is who stands out in the crowd? Who looks like they're sweating or nervous or anxious or looking around themselves? Who is actually looking for the security? And so their officers that they're out there, they'll they'll be across the footprint, and they'll be trained to do that. There'll be other officers there, lots of high-profile uniform officers, again, talking to people, engaging with people. You know, they'll be saying to the public, you know, if you see someone you're, 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 you're uncomfortable with or someone who's acting strangely, tell us, tell the police, tell the soldiers, because there'll be military police on duty as well. And so it's really encouraging the public and the, the people that are there to become part of the security solution. Um, now, that's not a foolproof scenario, of course, but what it does do is it makes it difficult and it makes it, a hostile environment for someone who wants to cause problem to come upon. And I have found over the over in the past that the one thing that that anytime there's one of these big royal events is that and and the Olympics was similar. No one does it quite as effectively as 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 they do in Britain. It is the least visible, and it feels the most effective the way things are done. It, it, it is a it's a very difficult thing to do, made to look quite simple, and that in of itself is a compliment. Well, I suppose it's because we do it all the time. Every day in the summer, we have the guard chain, the foot guards change at Buckingham Palace. You know, we have to deal with people. Who, and we've seen the incident this week with an individual who is right. being detained under the Mental Health Act. You know, these these people are man, managed and monitored by an organisation called the Fixated Threat Assessment Team. Because there are these people around the world who think they are the legitimate heir to the throne. Really, and they're kept at people, and obviously they're probably active on social media or so on. So they yeah, are, yeah. they are, they are known. They are known. They are known yeah. quantity. One of them might be the heir to the throne. Who knows? He's not. He's not going to be coronation tomorrow. Not so. this week. Not this week. Yes. Whether he is or not, he's, he's missed his term. But people turn up because they have issues with the royalty. 
people turn up because they have issues with some of the charities and some of the other uh, things that the royal family are involved in. Um, we have, you know, demands at the moment around reparation from the slave trade going back, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of years and what have you. So there's a plethora of different reasons why people might turn up and be hostile towards the royal family. So that's one element people are looking at. But we do that every day. You know, the, as I say, we have the guard change every day. The royal family uh, move across London every day. Very often, no one even notices that they're doing it. It's not like the Americans where we have hundreds of people running, running along in dark glasses, might have you. It, it's, right. it's very discreet. It's very unobtrusive. And that's what the royal family want. Um, as you say, though, very often, there's lots going on in the background. And equally, there's a lot of intelligence gathering going on in the background. So we know you know, where 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 certain people are at certain times that, that are known to be troublemakers or known to have issues or, you know, mental health issues or criminal issues. It looks easy, but I can assure you that there are, you know, this has been planned for months, if not years. Perhaps the funeral of Her Majesty was something of a trial run to, to, to bring all these various elements to force. And so, you know, let's hope that tomorrow goes well. Let's hope that anyone who, who wants to protest does so peacefully. And let's hope that it's, uh, you know, that everyone has who's turned up enjoys the day and gets home safely. Philip, as always, thank you for your insight on this, your unique insight on this. My pleasure. Thank you very much. We're inching ever closer to the uh, to the coronation in London. It's 5 a.m. in London, so it'll still be dark, but the sun will be rising pretty soon. And today is the big day for the first time in 70 years. May the 6th, 2023, we will see um, the coronation of a British monarch, King Charles III. Uh, You can watch coverage beginning at uh, 5 a.m. Eastern, 2 a.m. Pacific. From London, Donna Friesen and the Global National Team are there. Um, About an hour later, the procession begins from Buckingham Palace. That'll be quick, only about half an hour to get to Westminster Abbey. And then at um, 10 a.m., I believe it is. I'll just make sure on the times, but about uh, two hours after the coverage begins at 5 a.m. So around 7 a.m. Um, actually, you know, I'll change. I'm going to get those times wrong. So let me let me do it again. For some reason on Friday nights, I don't know why I'm struggling with this math. I've been doing it for half my life between living on the West Coast, growing up on the East Coast and living in London. I know these hours, but I'll get the times right for you. Suffice it to say, we're coming up on the ceremony. It's coming up soon in London. Hopefully um, the new king, uh, or he's already king, but hopefully uh, King Charles is getting a good night's rest tonight. We spoke to Mary Foster in the last hour, who's a Canadian camping out on the Mall in London, hoping to get a good, uh, she's got a great spot right across from Clarence House, not too far from Buckingham Palace on the Mall, looking to get a great view of all the activity tomorrow. Uh, Listen, you'll understand this, of course, is a ceremony steeped in tradition. The first time they held a coronation at Westminster Abbey, where tomorrow's will be, was in 1066. So you can imagine how long ago this goes. And there are so many different parts of this ceremony that are steeped in history, from the crown to the robes to to the throne or to the the throne he'll be sitting on uh to the spoon for the i mean it it is remarkable a lot of this stuff um has been in the royal family for ages right it's it's going to be quite the thing to watch there are some modernization things that have changed they're going to make it shorter two hours instead of three back in 1953 it was five i think uh for queen victoria um the procession route will be shorter two kilometers instead of eight. There are fewer uh, dignitaries inside uh, Westminster Abbey or in and around 2,000 instead of uh, 8,000, I think it was back in 53. Um, But again, you know, this is something 
steeped in tradition. And it comes at an important time for the king, of course, because he's looking at a slimmed down monarchy. And there are some family dramas going on around him. Prince Harry, of course, will be there, but he's not going to be taking part officially in anything that's going on. Neither is Prince Andrew. Uh, Royal correspondent for ABC, uh, Victoria Murphy, says there may be tension surrounding Harry's return, but it is still a big day for the entire family. I do think this is a very important show of unity for the family. Harry is coming here to support his father. His father really wants him here. And despite everything that's happened, Harry was brought up in this world. And I think there will be something very deep within him that really respects the importance of this moment. And, you know, this does come at a time where people around the Commonwealth, but also in England are questioning, in Britain are questioning the monarchy to some extent. I mean, this has been a really tough time. Cost of living has been uh, high in the UK. It's been a really rough winter. And they look at this sort of opulence. I mean, the Sunday Times estimates this coronation will cost about $170 million. And that's picked up by, uh, paid for by the taxpayer. So there is some consternation, some some debate about this going on. I think a lot of people are eager for the big day. I mean, it is a piece of history. To talk about all of this and much more is Joe Little. He's managing editor of Majesty Magazine, and he joins me now from London. Joe, I know you're busy. Thanks for your time. It certainly does. Uh, you know, many of us haven't experienced a coronation before, um, the last one having been almost 70 years ago. So um, it's it's a whole new ball game for us. Yeah. One of the things that I found really interesting is just how much it, it has to be steeped in history. And yet there is an attempt to modernize it to some extent. How difficult is it to find that balance? I mean, in of itself, it is a opulent and grand ceremony steeped in centuries and centuries of history. And it lands, though, at a very different time than 70 years ago. We were talking about how, how spectacular TV was when Queen Elizabeth was coronated. And now you can watch the whole thing on your phone. You're quite right. Back then, it was really hard to to see the the ceremony live. It was just um, accessible to a, a very limited number of Brits, and um, everybody else had to wait for the newsreels to arrive in their local cinema. But um, technology being what it is, you can watch it anywhere at any time in any way these days. You know, it's it has got to be still relevant in the 21st century, and that is a really tricky thing to to achieve because you, you're right; it's set in. Uh, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, royal history there, and it's a very ancient ceremony, and it's, it's a very religious, it's a very sacred um, ceremony in, in in parts too. So, um, but it, it has to mean different things to different people, and, and not least the monarch who is being crowned. So, the, the king has been very keen to to streamline it, and it's on this occasion going to be uh, two hours long ish when his mother was crowned three hours long when queen victoria was crowned five hours long right so so thankfully we won't have a, a five-hour marathon tomorrow but um you know there, there are modern flourishes there's new music involved but there's a huge amount of um of very rousing um traditional music as well which i think everybody will enjoy when one reflects and i mean i i've i think we've all met the new king once if you've been covering royal stuff over the years i think we had one encounter with him i was always struck by just how long this day he's waited for this day and i'm wondering just from someone who's watched him for so long it's going to be a big day for him too i think it not that it has it all settled in already but going through that ceremony that he would have only ever seen i mean he's never seen a coronation himself right which is which is odd of in it in itself but for him, it'll no doubt for, for King Charles, it, it will definitely, I, I suspect, be a very emotional day. 
I'm sure. Well, I mean, um, as a as a four year old, he was taken briefly to watch his mother being crowned. So right. he wasn't there for the for the whole ceremony, but he he did see um, the most important part of it. Right. Doesn't remember a huge amount about it. But, uh, you know, I met him briefly on Wednesday afternoon. There was a garden party at Buckingham Palace and um, I, I wished him luck for tomorrow. And he was very laid back. You know, he he was taking his time talking to people. And um, for somebody about to experience what he's about to experience, he was uh, incredibly calm. And that was just how he seems to be taking it all in his stride. You know, he's, he's the longest ever serving Prince of Wales. Um, he's been training for this job for more than half a century. So, you know, nobody does it better, I would imagine. But clearly he will do it in his own way. You know, his style is um, clearly different to that of, of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, and, and in many ways it's more relaxed. And um, he, he is very touchy-feely in a way that his mother couldn't be. It's a generational thing, and um, even more so with the the new prince and princess of Wales. So um, the coronation, I'm sure, must be uh, a terrifying prospect for for Queen Camilla. Perhaps less so for her husband, because he did, of course, many years ago now, um, have uh, his investiture as Prince of Wales back mm-hmm. in 1969. So he has a, a taste of it. I remember his Welsh, his his Welsh for that. That was uh, that was. I mean, just just watching the reels, obviously, uh, a big moment for for Camilla too. I mean, this has been, you know, when this day. I think when we pictured this day back in the early '80s, we always expected it would be Queen Diana sitting there, perhaps. And here we are with Queen Camilla. It's been a, it's been a change, but one that seems to have been. I mean, I, I remember back to even the days when I was living in the UK, where affection for Camilla had grown. Acceptance of their relationship had grown, and I suppose perhaps that's the most modern touch of this whole ceremony is the, is the Queen sitting beside him. Well, precisely, and you know it doesn't meet with universal approval given that they are both divorced and, and the circumstances behind their their relationship. But that was then. This is now. You know, since they married, and that was eighteen years ago, the the public have become aware as to how important Camilla is to Charles and um, how good she is for him in, in so many ways. We, we can now also see what a, a, a valuable asset she is to the, the British royal family. And um, she um, has her own unique style. She is incredibly friendly. She's very down to earth. And, you know, we'll, we'll make a, a very good queen consort in, in terms of title, uh, sorry, role rather than title. Her, her rise... It's been pretty meteoric, you know, considering how far she's come in the last 20 years. And, you know, the crowning moment literally Literally, will come tomorrow. Joe Little is managing editor of Majesty Magazine. He's in London. We're just hours away from the coronation of King Charles III. Now, when we're watching tomorrow, I know it's a shorter ceremony, but there are certain moments during the event that if most most people living today have never seen a coronation of, of an English monarch, of a British monarch, what should we be watching out for tomorrow that is of particular significance, do you think? Well, the, the principal moment, of course, is the, is the moment of crowning for both uh, the king and the queen. We, uh, we don't get to see the most sacred part of the ceremony, which is when the, the king is anointed. Um, that will be done. Uh, behind especially uh, made screens right um, but for the first time we get to see the queen anointed and that's done in a very pub way so um, that's that's a change to what would have happened say in uh, 1937 when King George VI and Queen Elizabeth were crowned but of course back then there was no 
TV coverage of the ceremony. So, um, so, so that in itself will, I think, be the the centerpiece of the, the whole occasion. But right. you know, we're, we're also going to be seeing the king's grandson uh, helping him along the way in the processions. He'll be holding um, his robes. Uh, and Camilla, she will have her grandsons doing the same. So, you know, it's a, it's a massive state occasion, but there are still elements of family matters as well brought into it. So it's a very nice balance of the, the most senior pomp and pageantry, but just little intimate family glimpses as well, too. I was surprised that the anointment, I mean, clearly there's a reason for it, but that the part of this ceremony would take place out of out of public eye, which is... You know, for 2023, it seems um, it will be it will be a unique moment. Yeah, I mean, Queen Elizabeth II regarded it as her her private moment that at which she made a, a bond with God, and and you know, her son is equally religious. Um, you know, the, the, the prince is uh, the king, I should say, is a is a very spiritual man. The, the significance of the moment won't be lost on him. The crown itself, I mean, we're going to see two, three crowns, right? There is here, the king has two, Camilla has hers. Yeah. We don't often see specifically the coronation crown. We don't often, it's not something we see. What I mean, these are, there's a lot of jewelry going on tomorrow, <laughs> to put it in my in, non, uh, in non-royal terms. Let's say it wouldn't be a good time to visit the jewel house of the Tower of London tomorrow, because it's going to be pretty empty. The king will be crowned with St. Edward's crown, um, and that um, is worn only once per reign, so he will never wear that again after tomorrow. He will leave Westminster Abbey wearing the Imperial State Crown, which we became familiar with Queen Elizabeth wearing that so often at the uh, state opening of Parliament, and, and the King will continue to do so. So that, that's a multi-use crown. Um, and Camilla um, has opted to, to wear Queen Mary's crown made for the coronation in 1911. And, and that's one that we haven't seen for a very long time. But, you know, Camilla is very good with crowns. She, she suits tiaras and uh, I think um, she will present an impressive side tomorrow. And two, for the public watching um, along the mall, there'll be two different coaches, right? There's a, there's the the newer stage coach. I remember seeing that one at the uh, at the Diamond Jubilee and the older one. I believe I also saw at the Diamond Jubilee. Um, so, so lots for lots for the, the procession itself is going to be. I mean, when the public takes part, that is the, it is during both the arrival at Westminster Abbey and the departure. Yeah, so it's a much shorter processional route this time. It's about a quarter of the route that was used in 1953. So um, that obviously presents difficulties because less people can come into a, a fairly small area but um, you know I think there will be huge crowds and there already are lots of people that have been camped out for several nights on the mall um, but um, in days gone by the gold state coach would have been used for both journeys not this time the, the late queen decreed it um, horrible to, to travel in it has no suspension um, it's pretty much like being at sea. So um, for the outward journey from Buckingham Palace, it will be the the very new Diamond Jubilee coach, which um, has air conditioning, um, good lighting, great suspension, uh, and that will convey them to the Abbey. So they won't right. arrive feeling nauseous um, after the journey. It's, it's a journey that... Um, will take them 33 minutes. Coming back, though, a different proposition. The Gulf State coach made 
1761, not very comfortable. It has to go at walking pace. I'm sure the king and queen will be ready to get to it when they return to Buckingham Palace, <laughs> um, because even at walking pace, it's not going to be a pleasant ride. The only thing that's nice about it is that it does very much slow down the procession so the audience can have a good look. I always thought that was the, the benefit of it. Where will you be tomorrow? Where are you going to watch all this unfold? Uh, I won't be capping out. Those, those days are long gone, um, I have to say, um, particularly with the weather here at the moment. Um, I will be at um, the Abbey tomorrow morning. I'm working for the BBC behind the yep. scenes, and um, I have to be there, would you believe, by 5 a.m., that early morning call. I'm sure the new the, the I'm sure the king will be up even even earlier than that. Joe Little, as as always. Thank you. I think what we will experience on Saturday, the sixth of May, will be spectacular, exciting, and and at times emotional too. It really is a drive. It's a force. I I knew uh, from the time I was seventeen that. For instance, if uh, you were going to sing, you would write your own songs. It became built into my psyche at that, you know, that early. He loved this country with an incredible deep passion uh, and uh, was extraordinarily humble about it as well. I remember um, spending a little time with him a few years ago when he was playing for Canada's 150 on, uh, on Parliament Hill and was touched by his thoughtful grace and generosity. Somebody said, you know, how much longer are you going to do this? And, uh, and I said, well, I'm not. He said, oh, we got to keep going, don't we, Anne? And I went, no, Gordon, I don't think so. What he wanted to do was perform until he couldn't. Yeah, we lost Gordon Lightfoot this week at the age of 84, uh, late Monday. Uh, you heard there from Gordon himself talking about uh, why it was so important for him to write his own songs, and of course, the Prime Minister paying tribute to him, and Murray with a really, uh, with a nice, with a nice sort of encapsulated, uh, I think, Gordon Lightfoot's approach to performing and music, which was, you know, it's what he was here to do, so he was going to do it um, as long as he could. There will be a public visitation for Lightfoot on Sunday in his hometown of Aurelia, Ontario. Uh, the family, uh, his family, uh, said people could pay their respects at St. Paul's United Church from 1 to 8 p.m. on Sunday in Aurelia, Ontario. Private funeral will be held there uh, at a later date. Uh, you know, it was often said about Lightfoot, we've talked a lot about him this week. I found out a lot about him this week. I mean, I knew his music and I knew something about him, but I didn't know as much as, I, as I've now learned by talking to lots of others who knew him a lot better. Uh, than I did. You know, he wasn't one for the magnifying glass. He wasn't one for all the things that come with fame. I think he enjoyed the songwriting. He enjoyed the performing. He enjoyed playing for his fans, meeting them, talking to other musicians. He didn't enjoy the other side of the business, which is sort of the fame, uh, press, media side of it. But there were exceptions, including a biography published in 2016 or 2017, rather, that he collaborated on extensively if at times Reluctantly, it was written by Nicholas Jennings, who's a music journalist who had first met um, Lightfoot actually working at Massey Hall. You know, Lightfoot used to play all the time at Massey Hall. And uh, Jennings wasn't uh, wasn't a journalist. I don't know if he was a journalist at the time, but um, he was working behind the scenes at Massey Hall and met Lightfoot for the first time. He would later write the, li the liner notes for his uh, Lightfoot's 1999 box set called Songbook. And the story goes that Lightfoot later told his manager to tell Jennings that if anyone was ever going to write a book about him, that it would be Jennings because we felt it was someone he could trust. He felt he could trust him. 
Uh, so earlier this week, we caught up with Nicholas Jennings. Uh, his book is called Lightfoot. Uh, it was the culmination of about a decade of work, including several lengthy interviews with Lightfoot himself, access to many files, notes, and memorabilia that Lightfoot had accumulated over the years, as well as interviews with family and close friends and other musicians. Uh, now, Jennings paid a visit to Lightfoot in Toronto before leaving on a trip to Europe last month. So you seen him, saw him fairly recently. And uh, then he left on that trip. We caught up with Jennings in Lisbon, Portugal on Tuesday. And of course, I started by thanking him and, um, and expressing what a roller coaster 24 hours it must have been for him and all those close to Gordon Lightfoot. Here is the interview. Yes, it has been. I, uh, I, I've been in Europe for, uh, for three weeks, but uh, the day before I left, Knowing that Gordon was in uh, a weakened state, um, I, I ventured up to his house and paid him a visit. And I sort of knew after seeing him, I hoped, I hoped in my heart that he would pull through. And I wished him, I told him I, I hoped that he did. I knew that he would because I said, you've been through a lot of health challenges and you've come through them, them fine. So I know you will this time. But in my heart of hearts, I, I kind of knew that uh, it, it was... I think he, he was so frail. I, I just, I, I, I think I knew in my heart of hearts that this would be the last time I'd see him. What did you talk about? Talked about his, his daughter, Meredith Moon, who is a singer songwriter herself, okay. just released an album. And I'd been to see her perform in Toronto. And I wanted to tell Ward how impressed I was by Meredith and uh, that I was going to do my best to spread the word about her, her new album. And he said, Thanks, Nick. Every little bit helps, he said, and he he gave me he gave me a grin. I said, I hope I hope uh, when I get back we'll be able to go out for for wife, uh, for for dinner with our wives as we've done before. Gordon, he he just sort of nodded and smiled, and and yet you know I I could see that he was uh, he, he was ha he was having trouble. He was uh, you know he suffered from emphysema and it had taken its toll on him. He'd lost a lot of weight. It, it was hard to see, frankly. Yeah, and um, but it, but amazing that there he is still thinking about his daughter's career, like you know, sitting there thinking, still, oh. still, always the working musician, right? Never oh, not the working musician. Yeah, Pr proud father. I mean, yeah. you know, he thought uh, so highly of his all of his children. He had six children by a number of different women, and he was he was very very uh, a devoted dad, and certainly trying to make up for lost time because, of course. In the seventies and eighties, he wasn't around a lot for his kids, and he that that uh, I think that just made him want to be a better better father uh, later in life, which he was. You've talked about that too. That that weighed. I mean, he was a man who 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 carried burdens heavily. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but he was someone who took his burdens quite seriously. And you could tell from the way he wrote his music. You could tell from the way he talked about himself as well that uh, that he was not a person without regrets, right? And that I mean that made him all the more human, I think, to the rest of us. He had uh, a very deep sense of responsibility to his family, to his fans, to his his band members. I mean, he, uh, you know, he took all of these things on, like, with, with a, a great deal of gravitas. I admired that about him. I mean, I, I learned so many things spending the, the time that I did with him and writing the biography. I mean, including that I think he was a very deeply moral person. Um, Despite despite the uh, you know the 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 heavy the periods of heavy drinking and and affairs that he had during the height of his fame, he really regretted those and wanted to 
you know, in his words, redeem himself for those for those mistakes. And uh, I can't I can't express really just how much that uh, how much he thought about that. I mean, he he was a incredible fretter. I mean, he fretted about. You know, have I got this guitar in tune? Um, right. Oh, have I, have I remembered to call my son? You know, I mean, all these things weighed on him. And uh, and it, it always amazed me at just how much he he, he was able to juggle his, all his personal demands and responsibilities with with his, his creative life. He must have trusted you an awful lot because you the, the man you describe, I think, is the man that we all saw too, who was very comfortable on stage. He loved to be on stage. He would, he was happy to be photographed with his fans. He was a the consummate artist that you that you're not disappointed to meet. I would think. At the mm-hmm. same time, he didn't love the attention, you know, the, no. the fame, so to speak, and being no. that being that that you know having to give the interviews and being asked the same questions again and again. Uh, he yeah. must have really developed a very deep trust to share that much of his story with you. Well, I was I was honored that he asked me. You know, he said, well, "Why don't we do a book together?" And I was honored that he asked me. And then it was a, a, a rather interesting and sometimes frustrating. Um, uh, dance that he and I did for the next number of years because he kept getting cold feet about the idea of uh, a biography, um, you know, worrying that, oh, it was going to delve too deeply into some of the nooks and crannies. And, you know, he worried about what he referred to as the skeletons in his closet getting exposed. And I I can't tell you, I must, he must have put the whole project on hold or on pause at least five five times over the course of 10 years. And, you know, my wife and my agent both said, Nick, you, you'd be better off just walking away from this, you know. And, and, and yet I felt I had so much material. And because I didn't feel that his story had ever been told properly, you know, the next time he called and said, are we going to do this or not? You know, it's like, well, I've been waiting for you, Gord. And, and, uh, and then ultimately what happened is he, you know, in an incredible act of generosity, he just said, look, You've got enough material, Nick. Why don't you just go off and write it yourself? I don't need to be involved from here on. He'd given me complete access to, you know, his his friends, his family, uh, his bandmates, given me the, the basically the okay. It's okay to talk to Nick, and uh, and then shared, you know, his incredible uh, archive of photographs and and uh, and uh, memorabilia, and and then didn't ask to see a single page of the manuscript before the book was published. And uh, I, I mean, I, I still can't believe it when I think about it, just how generous yeah. that was with him. I've been told that he hadn't read many like, of the other biographies written about him, that he had never read most of them. He didn't like reading about himself. He wasn't really interested in seeing his life down on paper, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he didn't. But, you know, I invited him to the book launch. Uh, yeah. my, my publisher sent him a copy of the book the minute it was published. And uh, I had no idea what he thought of it. And then the night of the book launch, I didn't know whether he was going to show up or not. And then when he did, my wife spotted him coming through the door and said, he's here, he's here. Wow. And I, I went over to greet him at the door, extended my hand to thank him for coming. And the first thing he said was, well, I finished it. <laughs> wow. and I said, and, and, and he said, it's a real page turner. You did a good job. And I thought, oh, my God. That oh, that's is high praise from him. From, yeah. from a man of a few words like Gordon Lightfoot. So I, uh, I, was, I was over the moon with that. And, and it, it was ultimately, uh, I think, 
you know, I, I I realized that to tell his story properly, I had to I had to show his 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 life in and his work in context. I I could not gloss it over. I had to sort of deal with what he calls the darker chapters, the darker yeah. episodes, and uh, and and wart, warts and all, if you like, and. Yeah. And I think I think he realized that. I think he ultimately so he didn't come back and say, "Why the hell did you have to put that in?" He just realized, okay, this was this was the this 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 is what I gave Nick the opportunity to do, and he's done the best he he, he could with it. And uh, and that you know, for, as I say, I'm forever grateful that he. Uh, he trusted me. Nicholas Jennings is the author of Lightfoot, the biography of Gordon Lightfoot, published in 2017, a longtime friend of the singer-songwriters as well. He's a music journalist. Nicholas, you sat down. I mean, he thought it was a page turner, so that must be a good sign. But what was it about his story as you dove into it? Because, because I know you, you'd met him. I mean, you knew him fairly well. You loved, you loved his music. There was a lot you already knew. But then you, you dove in and told a story about his life so that we would better understand this complicated genius enveloped in this humility that was Gordon Lightfoot. And mm-hmm. what did you walk away with? What what did you learn and what did we learn about him through that whole experience that we should be remembering today? Well, that I think, you know, um, on the surface, he was a very simple man, um, you know, a small, small town boy from Aurelia who grew up with a, you know, with a strong work ethic that he inherited from his father who ran the the local dry cleaning business in Aurelia, on the surface, kind of a simple, a simple man. But you know, as as I got to know him and as I delved deeper into it, I realized just that it was there was unbelievable levels of of complexity to his life and to his uh, to his his personality. The man he, who who he was 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 not what he appeared on the surface. Gordon Lightfoot fans across Canada, all around the world, who absolutely love his his songs, know that he's a man of of some complexity because of the nature of his songs. His songs cover themes of of you know, I mean, a remarkable range. You know, over five hundred songs. There are you know historical epics like uh, the Wreck of the Emma Fitzgerald, of course, Canadian Railroad trilogy. But there are deeply romantic ballads. I mean songs that um that he wrote from a deeply personal place and and yet somehow found a way to make them accessible and and meaningful to people from all walks of life so that's really <laughs> you know about as as uh, great an achievement as as uh, one one you know any artist could make is is that you reached the number of people with your art that Gordon Lightfoot did you know he had in 1974 the biggest single song uh, and the biggest single album in the world in Sundown number one around the world and you can just imagine. In those days, when record sales were as huge as they were, just what that meant to a career. And and in Gordon Lightfoot's case, he was touring the world. He was playing the biggest stages everywhere. I, I became a bit of an obsessive Lightfoot collector, and I, I I've picked up over the years records that have been basically released in Japan, in Spain you know, in, in Germany and Holland, you know, so you see these, these songs that we all know, and they're, the titles on the sleeves are written in the language of those countries, because that's how big he was. Those songs 
you know, were hits. Universal. Yeah. They were considering how Canadian we consider them, perhaps not some of the, some of the bigger, I mean, the record of Edmund Fitzgerald is about as, well, I guess it's about as great lakes as it gets. Um, How did he see himself in that, in that way? Because he was, he was always touted as being this sort of Canadian poet laureate and Mm -hmm. this troubadour of ours. Uh, Did he Mm -hmm. see himself the same way? Well, I mean, he was deeply, deeply proud of his Canadian heritage. Um, you know, he he loved Canada. And yet, you know, he spent probably more time touring in the U.S. than he did in Canada. If you add up the tour dates over the years and, you know, his his number of appearances, you know, started to taper off in the last few years. Understandably, the guy's in his was in his 80s. But, um, you know, he at the peak, was doing hundreds of shows, you know, many of them in the U.S., playing in cities and and towns all across America. And, you know, that that, uh, is also surprising. You know, as Canadian as he is, he was beloved. You know, far and wide. I mean, and and probably no 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 nowhere more so than the U.S. You know, so it's funny that despite his Cana- the Canadianness of his songs, uh, Americans love those hits. They love songs like "Beautiful" and they love songs like you know "Pussy Willow's Cattails." They, they, it didn't matter to them that it was written about the countryside where he grew up in 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 Aurelia. You know, to them, it just it just was a beautiful song about being out, out in the outdoors, you know, um, and being one with nature. We're gonna uh, miss him. We're gonna miss him. We're going to miss him hugely. You know, I don't I don't know, frankly, if there'll, there'll be another like Gordon Lightfoot, really, um, because he he devoted himself to the craft. You know, he was I, I once I once I once used the phrase master craftsman of song. I mean, he he that's he, that, that was his calling. And that's what he devoted himself to. And I don't think, you know, anyone has has achieved um, a better a, a better level of of uh, success in that craft than than Gordon Lightfoot. Well, Nicholas Jennings, uh, you wrote the book on Gordon Lightfoot, so thank you so much for sharing your time with me tonight, and my condolences to you as well. I know it's tough. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. 